first things I heard when somebody witnessed to me, and that is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What they didn't tell me is that Satan loathes you. And he has a miserable plan for your life. And now that you're a Christian, he's trying to get you bogged down, distracted, discouraged, to get you to the place where you are of no value at all to God and just stagnant. Because now he knows that you are already God's child and you're going to heaven. That's bad enough. But woe unto him if you be on fire and mean business with God and go get him like what we heard tonight as Bill was sharing. Bill number one and Bill number two. And so Satan would love to just rip you off. We've seen that in the book of Acts. We've seen the power of God flowing through simple individuals. We've been encouraged by it. But we've also seen Satan attacking the church in a number of ways. First of all, persecution. The interesting thing is that persecution never hurt the church. It never really worked. They just got better and better. They grew stronger and stronger. They spread out in an even greater capacity. So persecution failed. Next, Satan tried corruption. We saw in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were lying and playing the hypocrite. Smiling on the outside. Disobedient in the heart. Corruption didn't work. God gave discernment to Peter. Ananias and Sapphira kicked the bucket, got slain by the Spirit, fell over and breathed no more. But that didn't work. There's a third attack now on the church. We see it in Acts chapter 6, and that is distraction. If the enemy can get you distracted from what God has called you to do, get you to major on the minors, get you doing something God hasn't called you to do, then he can defeat you. In this book that we've been reading, there's something I've been noticing over and over and over again. And that is the disciples are weaklings. They're wimps. But filled with the Holy Spirit, they're powerhouses. There's nothing extraordinary about these men. And the men and women of the Bible are not special. They were just weaklings filled with the Spirit and they became spiritual powerhouses. That's something that strikes me every time I read it. That there was nothing extraordinary about them. And I am thankful for the book of Acts because it takes away false impressions that we have about Christianity. That the early church was perfect. And how often I have heard and I hear this, we want to get back to the New Testament book of Acts. As if the New Testament book of Acts was this wonderful conglomerate of perfect individuals. Well, you know, the church of Corinth was a New Testament church. Now, wouldn't it be pretty lame to say, we want to model the church of Corinth? I mean, they were the most carnal group of people around. And even in the book of Acts, we see carnality and imperfection in the midst of empowerment. We've seen it all the way through. Unfortunately, we read selectively. 
and we see some of the miraculous events in the book of Acts and we think that's what we want to reproduce and that would be wonderful to reproduce some of those things. I happen to believe that many of those things are taking place right now in different parts of the world and God is doing His work and we're not too far away from the book of Acts. But a mistake I think we make is that we rate spirituality by gifts, especially certain gifts. And if a person or a church claims to exercise certain gifts, we say, now that is spiritual. And so we measure spirituality by gifts instead of obedience to the gifts God gave you. See, that's really the heart of spirituality. Are you obedient to the gifts that God has given you? Are you following the path God has set out for you? It says that we are to desire earnestly the best gifts. Well, which are the best gifts? Tongues? Prophecy? Healing? No. Whatever gift God has given you, it's the best gift. And you ought to be pursuing the utilization of the gifts that God has given you personally. We see that also in the book of Acts here. Now, we see a problem arising in this chapter. It's not the first problem, but it's another problem. It's a division now. And this is really the first time we have seen a division of a local church in this book. There's two groups of people. They're not getting along with each other. And, you know, division in the Scripture is a little more common than people like to believe. Of course, the church of Corinth, they were divided, and Paul rebuked them for their division. What is beautiful about this section that we are reading is that although there was a problem of division, they solved it beautifully. And that's what we want to look at tonight. First of all, let's look at the problem. Verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now verse 1 states the problem. The problem was the division that was occurring between two groups. But the problem was presented, first of all, because there was growth in the church. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. The early church was perhaps one of the most exciting groups of people to be around. I've often imagined what it would be like to be hanging around in Jerusalem, to be watching Peter on the day of Pentecost and hearing Peter say, now I wonder how many out there would say, Peter, I'd like to give my life to Jesus. And 3,000 arms go up. Wow! And then a few weeks later, as he's preaching again, I wonder how many would like to give their lives to Christ today. 5,000 hands go up. From 120 people to 8,000 people in a short period of time. And what's astonishing is that most people believe they were just numbering men not women and children. And it's estimated there were 25,000 people in the first few months in Jerusalem. And how exciting to see that and the supernatural display of power. However, in the midst of all that excitement, the clouds of reality are settling in, even in the book of Acts. Division occurs because it says they were multiplying. There was growth. Growth, by the way, is normal. For a church. A church that does not grow is abnormal according to the book of Acts. 
Every time God is in charge, God adds daily those who are being saved. There's life that occurs. There's births that occur into the kingdom of God. That's normal. But when there is normal growth and you have more people, you have more problems. Why is that? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Do you know a perfect person on the earth? And when a person becomes a Christian, does that person go from imperfection all of a sudden to perfection? No, he's still imperfect. That's why Jesus died for him. When you get two imperfect people together, it's worse than having one imperfect person together. As you know, those of you who are married, a marriage is a contract and an agreement of love based upon commitment, but there's two imperfect people there. Okay? When you get 2,000, 3,000, 8,000 imperfect people together, you can have lots of problems. Jesus said, I've come up to, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted, preach the gospel to the poor, heal the oppressed, oppressed, poor. You get all those people together in one auditorium? That's a messy group of people. And you have problems. And so the growth alone caused some of these problems here. Again, I am appreciative that the Scripture is so honest and does not hide problems that the church had. So far in the book of Acts, we have seen an apostle, a follower of Jesus, one of the twelve, commit suicide. We have watched a husband and wife, highly esteemed in the church, blatantly lie and were judged. We see this problem of division in chapter 6. Later on, we see two bigwig apostles or disciples, Paul and Barnabas, getting into an argument. And the only way they could settle it is they just kind of argued with each other and they split company, never really reconciled, it seems. They just went different directions. And the Scripture doesn't hide even division. I like that. Years ago, there was a group of atheists called Free Thinkers. And they published a book to discredit the accuracy and the validity of the Scripture. They called it The Bible Exposed. And what they tried to do is show all of the flaws of the Old Testament and New Testament men and women of God. And how that they really weren't all that perfect. It shows you how an atheist thinks. They didn't discredit the Bible. They validated it. Anybody can write a perfect biography about someone and leave out the flaws. A lot of times biographies are written where they just embellish the person rather than telling the truth about a person. The Bible tells you the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And it tells you here that as they grew, they had problems. But let's go on. It was caused by animosity. It says, there arose a murmuring, that is complaining, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, before we jump right into this, there's a couple things I want to bring out. The early church cared for the poor. It was an emphasis. It wasn't the sole purpose for their existence. They didn't just preach a social gospel and not the gospel of salvation. But they did emphasize care for the poor. The reason they did that is because one of the fundamental points of God's character is that God loves poor people. 
underprivileged people. He loves all people, but he has this special place in his heart for the underdog, the underprivileged, and the poor. And he lays that responsibility squarely upon his people. We've seen it all the way throughout the Old Testament. As soon as people started populating cities and left the nomadic conditions, there were poverty problems. Up to that point, people really didn't have poverty problems. It was only as they settled within cities and there arose class divisions that poverty became a problem. And so God instructed in the law of Moses that his own children should watch out for people who don't have things, who don't have food, who don't have clothes. Even if they sold themselves into slavery, that when they left that condition, they would go out with great provision and wealth, actually. In the Old Testament, if you were to lend money to someone who was poor, you would lend him the money, but you'd never take interest. If you were planting fields, you would sow the seed, you'd let it grow, and you'd reap for six years. The seventh year, you'd let the thing just grow wild so that the poor could take all that grows of itself for that entire year. Also, during the six years that you actually harvest, you were not to go over your fields the second time, nor were you to harvest the very corners of your crop so that the poor people could come in and glean. And also so the wild animals could feed. I don't know if you recognize that. But God even had a concern in His heart for wild animals. It was a provision in the Old Testament. Every third year, a tithe of all of the produce was taken and stored up in the towns for Levites, widows, and the poor. Israel turned away from following God, followed idols, and started forgetting their concern for the poor. And in Isaiah chapter 1, God lists the sins for which He judged Israel and brought them into captivity. And one of them, you have oppressed the poor. When Jesus came on the scene, He preached the Gospel to the poor. Yes, spiritually poor, but also physically poor. In fact, Jesus trafficked among the physically poor. And it seemed like the common person, the poor person, listened and loved to Jesus, loved Jesus and listened to Him because no one, no one was concerned as much as He was. The early church took up that banner of concern because in the Jewish synagogue every Friday a collection was taken up for the poor and for the widow. And the early church then took up the concern if you were poor, if you were a widow. Now, we read later on in the New Testament that a widow had to be someone, husband has died, and she is of an age where she cannot provide for herself. If she's young enough, she's to get a job. Also, if she has relatives that are still alive, they are to provide for her. But if that woman has nothing, then the church takes up the slack. Financially provides for the widow. If there's no relatives, and if she cannot earn a living. It is the church's responsibility. Well, here's two groups of this type of a person. A widow. Can't earn a living. No relatives. And the church is taking care of them. Every week they would distribute Actually, every day, the daily distribution, they would distribute food and money to these widows. But there's two groups of them. There's a group of Hebrew widows and Greek widows. 
Both of them are Jewish in background. Both of them have accepted Jesus Christ and are saved. The Hebrew Jews were actually Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians who were purists in their customs and looked down upon the Greek-speaking Jews. Now, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows had spoke Greek, had a Greek culture, and the people of Israel, the Palestinian Jews, the native Hebraic Jews, really looked down upon these, just like, you know, I'm from California. And Californians, especially along the beach, I can testify to this because I was one of the chiefest, they were snobs, basically, many of them. In fact, when I used to surf in a certain place, Oftentimes we would see signs that said locals only. In other words, you have to belong to that little city and that neighborhood to go there. If not, they would smash your car to smithereens. And then pretty soon, as all these people were moving into Southern California, a lot of people got these little bumper stickers that looked like a California license plate that said in big orange letters, native. Like, I've been here before you were here. One time I was on the beach and I saw this husband and wife. They were arguing and they started yelling at each other. And they were trying to think of the filthiest, worst names they could call each other. He'd say something and she'd say something and it was a huge fight. And she called him filthy names. Finally, he turned around and said, you tourist. And that got her so upset, she just turned and walked away from it. As if that is like the chiefest cut you could ever give someone. Oh, he called me a tourist. I can't believe it. That was, in a sense, what was going on in Jerusalem, in a very vague sense. The Hebrew Christians who held to the Hebrew Scriptures and were purists looked down upon the Hellenists. There was animosity between them. And these Hellenists felt like they were not getting a fair shake when it came to the distribution. Now, probably there was just poor administration in this section of the early church. But these ladies felt as if they were slighted, as if there was a discrimination. So they brought it up to the apostles. There's a lot of growth. The church can't even keep their head above the water as far as responsibility is concerned. And these gals come to the apostles and say, look, I think you're pandering to the Hebrew-speaking Jews. We're not getting a fair shake. So... It says, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Living in the world as a Christian presents its problems. And the problem, the first and obvious problem, is that we can start thinking and becoming like the world. 
That's generally what we fight against most of the time, isn't it? We're always wanting to be conformed into the image of Christ, to be holier, to walk more closely. We need Bible study. We need exhortation. We need times of worship and devotion because we find this propensity within ourselves to swerve and to be like the world because we have its influence around us constantly. We listen to its radio, its television. The people who don't know Christ are around us constantly. And we feel that tug. And the church has had a problem ever since its existence. And that is the temptation to be conformed to this world instead of transformed by the renewing of our minds. The Corinthian church is like the classic example of a worldly church. They're doing many things like the world is doing. They're accommodating in their theology and pandering to the world. Because of this, people throughout history have tried to figure out ways to shield the church from worldly influence. And about the 300s, 400s, people said, you know what? I think the way we ought to do this is we ought to build certain institutions and buildings high in the mountains, far away from people. We'll call them monasteries. We'll become monastic. That is, we will be so separate that we will actually separate ourselves from the presence of the world. We as Christians will hide away in a little retreat and we'll get holy. However, it never really worked well. They found that the flesh... The old nature followed them wherever they went. They couldn't leave that behind. They could leave the worldly influences, but they still had an old nature. And Satan didn't care about any hollow doors or walls. He'd go right through them. And he'd tempt them right there in the monastery. You ought to read some of the temptations that some of the monks and early priests faced. They found that it really didn't work all that well. And, besides that, it was never God's intention that people locked themselves away from the world. And although there were problems, although there was division in the church, although they followed worldly mannerisms, it was always God's intention that the church camp right in the middle of the world and never be taken away. Jesus said, I've called you to be salt and light. You can't do that very well just being away from everyone else. Well, we're Christians and we're off here in a monastery. You want to know about God, you come find us. It doesn't work that way. God's intention is that the Christian, with all of his or her problems, live and work right next door to the most wicked worldly influences while at the same time maintaining a holy walk. That's a tough balancing act. C.T. Studd once said, he wrote a little poem about it, He said, some people want to live right near to the sound of church and chapel bell. But I want to build a mission just a yard from the gates of hell. I don't want to be locked away. I want to be right where the problems are, where the world is. And I want to be a Christian in the midst of it. And so I want you to notice that all throughout the book of Acts, although there are these problems, although there's this animosity and this being influenced by the world, that the church is to hang tough, and to still maintain a walk with the Lord. What's the solution? We just read it. What did the early church do? Well, they didn't hide their face from it. They didn't say, oh, there's a problem, no big deal. They squarely faced it. There's a lesson to be learned. 
As I read the book of Acts, and here's a model for us, every time there was a problem between one person and another person, a husband and a wife, this little group in the church and that little group, people didn't hide from it. They didn't spiritualize it. They confronted it. And the Bible speaks of loving confrontation to bring about reconciliation. That's a biblical pattern. Not just to say, oh, no big deal, just sweep it under the rug, but no, to confront the issue. Lovingly, but definitely. And if there's sin, to approach your brother and say, you've sinned against me. So that there can be repentance and reconciliation. Always loving confrontation. In the book of Galatians, we read about Peter. Paul says, you know, Peter played the hypocrite. And so what did I do? I went to him publicly. Out in the open, I said, Peter, you are being a hypocrite. People come from Jerusalem and you don't eat with these Gentiles. As soon as they leave, you do eat with them. That's hypocrisy, Peter. And I rebuked him in the presence of all. He did it lovingly, but he did it definitely so that there would be no hypocrisy, loving confrontation. Anytime there was a problem in the early church, they met it head on. What they do? First of all, they set their priorities. Look at verse 2. The twelve summoned the multitudes of the disciples and said, it's not desirable or fitting that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Did that sound a little bit elitist to you? Well, it shouldn't. What the early church leaders are doing is a simple thing called setting priorities. What has God called me to do? Has he called me to do everything? Has he called you to do everything? Well, find out what God has called you to do. Stick that at the top of your priority list and go with it. Set your goal. Set plans to get to your goal, God-given goal, and go for it. He said, it's not fitting that we ought to leave the Word of God to serve tables. Now, don't get in your mind a picture of a waiter serving tables. These are the distribution tables for the widows. The banks, if you will, the doling out of the resources, the open arms ministry of the early church. And these apostles said, it is not right that we leave this study and teaching of the word of God and serve tables. So look at verse four. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Until now, it seemed like the apostles did it all. You wanted to counsel, you go knock on Peter's door and say, Peter, i got to talk to you for a while. I have a problem with my wife. When the widows needed something, you get Peter and John and the apostles together. That's their job. But as the thing started growing, and it got too many to handle for just those apostles, they recognized we've got to narrow our focus so that we can affect all of the people the best way. And so it's not right that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. We need that. In fact, in verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Oftentimes, I believe that the church, God's church upon the earth, has left its primary calling to serve tables. I have seen many pastors and many churches leave the Word of God to serve tables. They want to preach the social gospel. 
There's nothing wrong with taking care of needs and getting involved socially and politically. However, if that replaces the preaching of the gospel, that man is a lost sinner apart from Jesus, that a man must be born again, then you haven't preached the gospel. And you've left the Word of God to serve tables. And the church's priority was to preach the gospel, to know the Word, to teach people the Word, that they can become strong. And any time we think, well, the purpose of the church on earth is to feed the poor primarily, you've got it backwards, pal. Or the primary purpose of the church on earth is to evangelize the world. That's wrong. The primary purpose of the church is to love Jesus Christ. That's number one. Secondly, to build one another up so that we can all be strong. And then third, once we're strong and as we're growing, to go out and give away what we have. Those are the priorities. And the early church kept their priorities. Therefore, I believe God blessed the early church. I got a phone call one time from a pastor up in Colorado. He said, boy, the church is growing like crazy. I said, that's great. But I got a problem. What could be wrong with that? Well, the problem is, I'm counseling so much of the time, I get so many phone calls now to visit everyone in the hospital, to do all the counseling. I'm doing administration. I'm doing the uh, reports. I'm kind of being secretary. I've gotten so involved, I've had to bring someone on staff to teach my midweek and the Sunday morning services. It's kind of, what do I do? I said, well, I think you ought to give him the reins and call him the pastor and you ought to be called assistant pastor or secretary or whatever. But if God called you to be a pastor, then you ought to be giving yourself primarily to studying to teach the Word of God and then bring in others who are leaders alongside of you who have gifts of administration, who have gifts in counseling who have gifts in all of these areas, and use them. Whether they're lay ministries or you have them on staff, use them, but you give yourself to the Word of God if that's what God called you to do. When I started this church here, we had, uh, well, the first night we had four people. It was easy. And when we had 20 and 30 and 80 and 100 people, I could do all the counseling, I could do all the administration, I could do all of the reports for the board. I could do everything. Had a great time doing it. I answered all the phone calls. I was more accessible. As the church began to grow, and there kind of happened what happened in the book of Acts, not quite to that degree, I found myself in a dilemma. Although I wanted to continue doing them all, I knew that I couldn't. For me to be effective, I had to narrow my focus. So I couldn't be the worship leader Sunday morning as well as the teacher, as well as the administrator, as well as the counselor. I had to narrow my focus. As I started narrowing it, people started getting a little upset. You're not as accessible as you used to be. You don't, why don't skip counsel like you used to counsel? How come he has other people doing it? And I found myself in the dilemma, wanting, being pulled by some of these other things, but thinking, Lord, I know what you've called me to do. And I remembered something a teacher once taught me as I took a course in Bible study. He said, if you preach to a hundred people and you preach one hour, if you are not prepared in the word for that study, you've wasted a hundred hours of God's time. 
And that struck as an arrow to my heart. And I knew that my primary calling was to be in prayer and in the study of the Word. And the more I give myself to that, I feel like in setting those priorities that the Word of God can spread like we see here. And oftentimes there's this lording over and holding on to every ministry possible in the church by the pastor. He wants to do it all. And so other people can't get involved and use their gifts and get in any position because he's occupying them all himself. But as you release those things to people who are gifted at it and called to do it, they are excited about doing it. The work gets done. There's an excitement that generates and you're freed up to do what God called you to do. But look at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men. Notice the qualifications of good reputation. Not just any person. Someone who has a good reputation. He's been tested. He's been watched. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. In verse 5, we have a list of names. And isn't it interesting? They're all Greek names. Who complained? The Greeks. Isn't that a beautiful way in grace to solve the problem? Okay, you're complaining? We'll raise up all Greek-speaking, Hellenistic Jewish guys and they'll take care of it. The whole distribution for the widows. That should satisfy them. Whom they set before the apostles, when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And so they chose servants. I want you to turn to a Bible passage. Romans chapter 12. Keep your finger here. Turn to Romans chapter 12. I really want to stress this, and I'm looking for the best possible words to do it. I guess it's just the best ways to say it simply. As the church grew, as there was a problem with division, how did the early church solve it? They did two things. They set priorities, and they chose qualified servants to do the ministry. They didn't have a committee that they set up for this. They didn't get a big board meeting and have it out to vote and this kind of nonsense. They just prayed. Found people who were willing to serve and qualified to serve and they turned them loose. Layman's liberation. The gift that they were looking for was the gift of helps. At this point, they didn't need evangelists. They didn't need great gifted orators. They didn't need more musicians. They needed just servants. People who would help other people. And in Romans chapter 12, it talks about giving yourself to God, presenting yourself to God, and it says in verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. With prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry. You see that little word? It means practical service. He whose calling or gift is practical service. Did you know that that's a gift of the Spirit? 
and just as powerful and as important as someone who is an evangelist, a teacher, or who heals people, or ministry, let us use it in our serving or ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. One of the most beautiful gifts in the New Testament, but seldom ever mentioned or taught on, is this gift of being a servant. And it's a spiritual gift. And although a person may not be a gifted orator, although a person may not have certain gifts that we say that is real spirituality, just about anyone can help. Although it takes the gifting of the Holy Spirit, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, find Him and turn Him loose. I have a cassette package up in my office. 32 cassettes on one gift. Do you think it's the gift of helps? It's the gift of healing. 32 cassettes on the gift of healing. Which shows you the emphasis and the importance that we lend to those kind of gifts. Oh, they're important. Ask somebody who has a disease and wants to be healed if that's important. Sure it is. Why is it that no one speaks about this? And yet, the way that they solve the problem is they set priorities and found people with this gift and they matched the gift to the need and the work was done. But you know why people don't really look at this gift much or talk about Because it? it's not glamorous. It's not public. I mean, half the fun of doing right is knowing that other people know you did right. That's why people like the gifts that bring you up front. Teaching, evangelism, healing. People get to see you. People get to applaud you. But this is the kind of backstage gift that not a lot of people see. So it's not sought after. But it certainly is necessary. In 1 Peter, let me just read this to you. He says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as of the oracles of God. If anyone serves, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified. Whatever gift you have, if Satan can distract you so that you don't use what God has given to you to use, but you're seeking after something else, he'll wipe you out. And he'll burn you out. Easiest way to burn out is do something God didn't tell you to do. Take up a ministry God didn't direct you to do. Just do it and do it and work and work and you'll just get burned out at the end and you'll be panting. Oh, oh God, I served you. God said, you didn't serve me. You served your own thinking of what I called you to do. I didn't call you to do that. And I know a lot of people who are spiritual casualties. They go out in their own energy of the flesh. They try something, it doesn't work. And then they want to drop out altogether. And so whatever gift God has given you, just use it. You don't have to be fancy, just use it. There's a man sitting in Seattle, Washington. He was on a street corner, sitting down on a little stool. As people would walk by, he would hurriedly pass out tracks. Fast as he could get them out. Didn't say a word, just passed them out. Another Christian brother was observing him from a distance. And he thought, how cold. Why did he say something? Say some kind words to these people. Share love verbally. 
And he went over to him to ask him, how come you're so cold? And the guy just went, ugh, ugh. He was mute. He couldn't speak. And finally, the other man understood. He's doing the best he can with the gifts God has given him. He's sharing. He's ministering. He's being effective. He's doing what he can. So whatever gift, if God's called you to speak, God's called you just to serve, go for it with all the gusto you can. And it's a beautiful way in grace to solve many problems within the church. You know, we are impressed with the spectacular. We like things big. That's the American theology. The bigger, the better. The more spectacular, the more spiritual. But don't we forget that we live in an upside-down kingdom as Christians? And what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God, Jesus said. Oh, that's spectacular. But God looks at the heart. It might be spectacular if the heart's in the right place, but if not, it's an abomination to God. And we live in an upside-down kingdom, and the question is not how spectacular and is your ministry and, and how many people applaud you, but how did I serve the people who had those needs? It's the question that God always asks. Yeah. Leonard Bernstein, the famous conductor, was asked, what's the toughest instrument to play? He said, second fiddle. I can get plenty of people to play first violin and all of the first, but second, don't get a lot of takers. It's not as impressive to a great number of people, but it was sure important here in the early church. Now look at the results, finally, before we close. And the word of God, verse 7, spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests. Now this is interesting. For the first time, we read some of the hierarchy clergymen, the priests of the Pharisees coming to know Jesus. They were obedient to the faith. The result, the word of God spread, the church grew. Because the disciples were freed up to share their ministry the Word of God spread and the church grew. Without building drives, without committees, without Sunday school programs, the church grew. God added. And here we see God multiplying daily. What is the reward for being a servant? Here, not much. You don't get taken up in front of people and say, we'd like to, to introduce to you a faithful person who's been serving in the body undercover for the last 10 years, we don't want to do that. We don't want to draw attention that way. We'd rather let them get to heaven and have them hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, we should encourage them, yes. But we shouldn't steal their reward from them. And let's face it, being a servant in this life doesn't yield great, great, great rewards. But just being faithful to what God called you, wouldn't you just love to hear Jesus say, good job. You did a good job. Wouldn't it be horrible to say, well, you, you did all right, but I never asked you to do that. I never called you to be Billy Graham's assistant. I just called you to faithfully push that broom. Or it could be vice versa. There was a newspaper reporter who went to India. And he stumbled across a missionary nurse serving in the streets of Bombay. And she was taking care of orphan leper children. 
She was washing the sores of the lepers day after day. The newspaper reporter was covering it, and he finally turned to the nurse and said, I would never wash the sores of a leper if you gave me a million dollars. I wouldn't do it for a million dollars. The nurse said, I wouldn't either. But I gladly do it for Christ. I gladly do it for Christ. What has God called you to do? Do you know the answer to that question? Have you got some kind of plan and direction from the Lord for your life? I'm not asking you to know the road map in advance, but some general direction, at least a hint as to what your gift is. Many of you would say, well, I really don't. If that's the answer, then first is Romans 12.1. I beg you by the mercies of God that you just present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. In other words, God, I'm given up on following my own way. I'm, I'm ready just to do what you want me to do. I'm a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. So the first thing to do is say, God, what are my gifts? Where is my place? I don't want to please man. I don't want to please my preconceived notion of what I think I should do. Just tell me what you want me to do and start giving me direction for my life that I can invest in something. And you know what? There's a lot of needs out in this body. We know that because we see Him day after day. But there are also a great many people, I believe, who are called to be practical servants. And to God, that's so important. And the words Jesus will say to His faithful is not, well done, good and faithful evangelist. Well done, famous radio preacher, TV preacher. He'll call them servants. And He'll only give that title to those who really did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You've called us to a high calling, a royal position of a slave. You promised that the Holy Spirit would give direction, would give guidance. But Father, we pray that we could lay down ambition and forsake being a celebrity and let you make us a servant. I pray that we will become the solutions to the problems of division, of hypocrisy, and all of the problems we read about in the book of Acts, that we could practically be involved in setting our priorities, sticking to them, and willing to serve people where we see a need. And follow in the footsteps of Jesus who said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. Our lives are Yours, Lord. We place them before You as a living sacrifice. Where do You want us, Lord? Whatever the cost, where would You have us go? What would You have us to do? If we're in a comfortable position and it's hard to leave that comfortable position, and yet you want us somewhere else, we pray that you would awaken us. If we need to make a choice that's a very difficult choice, give us your grace to do it. And I pray that that mentality of servanthood would reign when we see other people. In Jesus' name, amen.